0: Gospel, please, and also Hebrews chapter 10. Although I think that song is beautiful, I don't want to see anyone sleeping in heavenly peace. (laughs) Once a person told me that they used to listen to, back in the old days, to my tapes because it helped them go to sleep, and I said, Well, thank you, I think. Pastor Samanex just call me. I'm glad you're laughing. I'll tell you why. I, I want this question. It's a test question, and it's one that I think is appropriate, and we're going to broach the subject and broach the answer to the question in these next few messages, and the question is, did Jesus laugh? Did Jesus ever laugh? And the reason for asking this question is because it reaches to the very depths of who he was in the days of his flesh, who he is as very God and very man, as true God and true humanity. It reaches to the very depths of true theology. And we're going to be asking some tough questions because the church is not just a place for song and worship it is that for praise and generosity it is that for fellowship between the brethren and it is that for rejoicing together and it is that but it's also a classroom and as jesus said come and learn from me this classroom is our master teacher is jesus christ there are pastor teachers but they're under the master teacher christ through the holy spirit teaches us and One thing I want to be taught here for all of us is that question. I'm going to ask it in the light of some pretty heavy theology, but we're going to also make the theology very understandable. The result of this, I'm convinced, will be your sense of his nearness to you, our Lord Jesus Christ's nearness to you in a more profound way and you're seeing of him with the eyes of your heart much more clearly than before and I know that's been the effect with me there's been times I've dropped my pen or dropped my hands in front of me and and simply said my Lord and my God as I realized some of the insights that have come forth and are coming forth from the study of the word and it's something that I'm very glad to devote myself completely to, so completely that sometimes I have to apologize for seeming to be a little distracted in normal living. But in John 1, we have in verse 12 this phrase, coming into the world, the Logos, who is God in John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word, who is God, The word who was with God became Emmanuel, God with us, by becoming flesh. Probably the most profound passage of scripture in the Bible, in this hyperlinked text we call the Bible, and it is hyperlinked, with at least 63,799 links. In this wonderful divinely hyperlinked text, John 1, verses 1 through 18, is one of the most profound pieces of divine revelation. And it speaks of the word who always was, God, becoming. It speaks of God, the word who was in his very essence and existence and name and act, God, becoming flesh. God, who always was, becoming like the creation that came into being. He came into being as a second kind of being. He became man. What kind of man did he become? And that's the question that we ask when we ask, did he ever laugh? We know that he was acquainted with grief. We know that he wept. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, but there are many reasons for that, and some of them are not understood. But did he laugh? Well, if you read some of his parables and understand them, they were almost like cartoons. That'll just give you a hint. They were hilarious, and their exaggeration of certain things were wonderful and hilarious. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus was a satire on the Pharisees who liked to talk about people going to hell that weren't them. And so we're going uh, to broach that subject because it goes deep. We're in Hebrews 10.5 where it says coming into the world. There was a moment of his coming into the world that he made. The logos, the word who made the world. The true light Came to his own, says John 1.11. And I'm kind of paraphrasing a lot of this passage. He came to his own. That is, he came to his own created domain. For John 1.3 says, positively, that all things, and that's the Greek word, panta, you'll see it in the notes if you want the notes, panta, P-A-N-T-A, all things, and positively, all things were came into being or have their being through him. Negatively, it says nothing came to be. And that's egeneto, the Greek word. Nothing came to be apart from him. Everything came to be through him. Nothing came to be apart from him. That word chorus, incidentally, I find in Hebrews 2, 9, Where it says that he, apart from God, chorus theu, apart from God, tasted death for everyone. He experienced the wages of sin, which is death for everyone. And whatever we want to say about that incomprehensible event, he was, in essence, far from. God when he did that. It's impossible for us to comprehend. That's the mystery of the cross. He is God. How can he be far from God? How can God say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Well, that's the mystery of the cross. It's the incomprehensible mystery. John 10 says that this true light, which is also his name, this true light, very deus, very homo means true God and true man, was in the world which had come to be through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. Then the scripture says that he came to his own covenant people in 111, his own people, a covenant people called Israel. And they, on the whole, it says, did not receive him. They did not receive him. Then the scripture says, as many as did receive him. There was a minority of individuals in that time who did receive him. As many as did receive him, to them, the logos, the word, the eternal word, God in the flesh, gave authority to become the children of God. Now, this is a verse that is highly misunderstood, and I want to just that misunderstanding today and maybe bridge the gap a little bit. Authority to become the children of God means the power and the authorization to act for God. He gave those that received him the power, the authorization to act for God. And therefore... Among his covenant people, some received him, yet it was those to whom he gave power to be and to act as the children of God, that is, to them that believe. Those that received him are the same crowd as those that believed in his name. To believe in his name is explained at the end of the gospel where it says these things, these miracles and signs have been recorded so that you, the reader, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you will have the experience of the life of the age to come, which is a better understanding than is usual in the English translations. So, To those that received him, he gave the power and the authority to act as his representatives. That's what's understood here, and yet not often brought out in exegesis. To believe in his name is to credit the logos with his true identity. It is simply to acknowledge the true identity of the logos, which has to be by a divine revelation, incidentally. The Christ, the Son of God, to believe in his name, the name of the logos or the word as Jesus, is the same to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To believe in his name is to acknowledge rather than to deny his true identity. This is like those outside of the sphere of his covenant people in Colossae. When Paul wrote to them, he said, you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. You received Christ Jesus, the Lord. That means you received the message about him and acknowledged him as the Messiah, as the Lord, as God and man. These are people who believed in Jesus of Nazareth as the Lord and as the Lord's Christ. If they were to see him, they would have declared, my Lord and my God, just as Thomas had done in John 20, 28, seeing his resurrected flesh. If they had seen him in his resurrected flesh, they would have said, my Lord and my God, and rightly so, because... They were among, as many of you are, if not all of you that I'm speaking to today, are those who believed in the name of the eternal word made flesh without having seen him in his resurrected flesh. You have seen and you have believed, Thomas. Blessed are those who not seeing believe. Blessed are you, therefore. To be given authority, the word exousias is used here, to be or to become the children of God, tekna theu and you'll see all the Greek in the notes if you want it. To be given authority or to become or be the children of God is to be given, and that's a gracious term, given freedom to act as the children of God and to be called the sons of God. Another term that's like it and that's almost equal to it. And in Matthew 5 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. He gave them the right, those who received him, he gave them the power, the freedom, and the right to act for him as peacemakers. To believe on the name of the Logos, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is to receive the word of reconciliation. When God spoke to us in these last days in a son, he spoke a word of reconciliation. His name is called the Prince of Peace. And the message that is in that word, that is that Logos, that is that word became flesh, is peace. Peacemakers are those who proclaim that reconciliation between God and man has happened. It has occurred. And so as many as received him were given the authority to proclaim the message of reconciliation. It's that simple. If they did not receive him and did not acknowledge him, how could he then give them the power to act in his name? Of course he could not. and did not. So to believe in the name of the Logos, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is to receive the word of reconciliation, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 calls it in that hyperlinked text we call the Bible. It is to receive the word of reconciliation spoken by God in him. In fact, the word to Telestai, uttered by Jesus on the cross, is the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic, mashalem, peace has been made. We're going to see that the first word he uttered coming into this world was sacrifice. The last word he uttered coming to the cross and dying for our sins was peace has been made. And arguably... Into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. The first words he says in his incarnation are from the Psalms. The last words he says are from the Psalms. To believe in the name of the Logos, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, which you have done here, most of you, if not all of you, is to receive the word of reconciliation spoken by God in him. It is therefore to receive the reconciliation itself, as Romans 5.11 says, of which the world is the beneficiary. The reconciliation that we proclaim is not just because we are the beneficiaries of the reconciliation. The world is the beneficiary of the reconciliation. Whether they receive him or not, whether they believe in him or not, the world is is the object of his love and of his reconciliation. God was in Christ in his birth when Christ was in the manger. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When Christ was hanging from the tree impaled there by Roman nails, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He came into the world that was made by him, and the world did not acknowledge him, but he still went on and reconciled the world to God, reconciled the world to himself. So to receive the reconciliation, to be recipients of him, is to receive the word of reconciliation and then to act as ambassadors of Christ with the message of reconciliation. To be given the power or authority as to be and to act as the children of God is to be given the message of reconciliation and empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim it. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. It is to receive the word of reconciliation and act as ambassadors of Christ with the message of reconciliation, that is, peace. It is to have our feet shod with what? The gospel of peace. Part of the armor of God, let your feet be shod with the gospel of peace. It is to have our feet shod with that gospel is to have the traction of the combat sandals worn by the Roman soldiers, as it were, with the gospel of peace. It's to have what the poetic Isaiah said, the beautiful feet of the messenger who proclaims peace. Blessed, is the, blessed are the messengers. Beautiful are the feet. That's a poetic way of saying wonderful is the message they bring the beautiful feet of the messenger who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who proclaims salvation. That's Isaiah 52.7. The freedom and authority to act as the children of God is the power to be a peacemaker. The power to proclaim the peace that God made by the blood of the cross of the son of God's love. It's The son of God's love, who is this logos in the Greek, this word, this eternal word. And this logos came into the world to reconcile the world to himself when it came to be at enmity with God. Romans 5.12 says sin came into the world using the same verbal language, sin came into the world and death by sin. Christ, the Logos, came into the world. Sin came into the world, corrupting the world. Jesus came into the world to become sin, to reconcile the world that had become at enmity with God through the sin that had come into the world and with it death. Jesus came into the world to be made the sin that corrupted the world and to bear it away and take it away and then to destroy death itself and the one who had power over death. Please notice that when John says to as many as did receive him, and there's an accent on did receive him, his own did not receive him, but as many as did means there was a minority that did. That is, to those who believed in his name. It's not two different groups. Those that did receive him were those who believed in his name, in his true identity. Notice that it says that the logos, the word, gave the power or authority to them to be and to act as the children of God. That is, as peacemakers, ambassadors of the reconciliation. John does not say that as many as received the Logos or believed in his name, that is to be Jesus, the Son of God, God's only eternally begotten Son, that they were saved. It does not say that when they believed they were saved. It says that those who did receive him, even those who believed, we given power to be the children of God, born not of the will of the flesh nor of man, but of God, of the will of God. God willed their birth, their second birth. It does not say that they were saved and that the rest who did not believe or who did not receive him were damned. It does not say that. It says that those who did receive him were given authority to act as the children of God, that is, the heralds of peace to all the others who did not receive or welcome him. Not only to the covenant people of God, but heralds to the whole world. That is why the disciples of Jesus became the children of God, they were given authority to act for God. Women like Mary and Martha of Bethany, the sisters of Lazarus. Men like Lazarus, their brother. Like the disciple whom Jesus loved who wrote the Gospel of John who was not the Apostle John, but someone closer to Jesus than that. And like Peter and his brother Andrew and like Nathaniel, whom Jesus called the Israelite, indeed, I saw you under that fig tree, Jesus said. Sense of humor there, believe it or not. In John one forty-seven, These became the children of God, that is, the blessed peacemakers, the heralds of the gospel of peace. The peacemakers who are called the sons of God who are the sons of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, says Galatians 3.26, whom they proclaim. John does not say here in the prologue of the fourth gospel that his own people to whom the Logos came, nor the world that he made, would be eternally lost because they did not receive him. That's what people assume is said. No, they did not. He did not say that. Because in John 3, 17, as we've taught many times before, God sent his son into the world. What's Christmas about? God sending his son into the world. He came into the world through a Christmas miracle. The Christmas miracle involved a virgin birth, a Holy Spirit conception of one whose name would be called Jesus, a virgin birth, and the word virgin is used in the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 7, 14, how God would be with us and named Emmanuel, God with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was always God, eternally God. Never was a time when he was not eternally God. And the word who was with God is God who became God with us. How much was he with us? Was he born? Here's the question I'm going to ask that goes deep. Was he born? And I've taught this before, I've been taught this. Now, what I've learned in my older age is, should have learned it in my early age. We are often taught, and we accept what's taught. Unfortunately, schools today, including the so-called Ivy League schools, are places of indoctrination, not critical thinking, where you think for yourself and where you study true history because true history books are being burned. And you do these things because you're told and you believe what you're told and you parrot what you're told, and if you parrot what you're told, you pass the course. You're fully indoctrinated. You're a nice little commie, (laughs) if I may use my own brusque language. And I've been taught by very capable teachers and taught well. I was taught by a teacher. My first pastor put me in front of a congregation of a few hundred people without warning and said, preach. And so I learned how to preach, and I learned how to preach boldly. I learned how to preach without notes. I learned how to preach on the moment, on the spot, and learned to preach with boldness and sometimes with a little bit of ferocity. I was also under another mentor who taught me to exegete the scriptures, look at every Greek word, pay attention to dogmatics and theology, and I did. And I, and I was, but I was also told that when Jesus was born, he came into this world like Adam was created. And then I studied further on it and i've asked the question did he did he because that's critical thinking was jesus did he come into the world as adam before the fall or did he come into the world with the nature of adam after the fall and was he temptable therefore just like all was he just like all of us more than we thought with a nature with a human nature that came into this world in a weakness that's like ours. And not only that, but was he born under sin, even though he knew no sin, did no sin? Did he have a nature that is weak like ours to the point where he can be temptable and feel the temptation? Or was he above it all? Did he come as a moral example? No. Did he come as a superhero? No. Did he come with an edge and an advantage? No. He was born of a woman. Born of a woman just like all of us were born of a woman. But unlike all of us, he was born of a virgin woman through a miraculous act. I was taught that we're supposed to look at the virgin birth and try to explain it in terms of biology, polar body, meiosis, and all this other stuff. But that's misleading. You don't explain the virgin birth and the virgin conception by a biological, natural theological explanation. It is a revelation of an act of God that is incomprehensible to us. How God came into the world in what we call, rightly so, the miracle of Christmas, the birth of Christ. I personally have discovered something about Jesus that has drawn me like from social distance to an embrace of him. Where I have seen him more closer than a brother, I have experienced him the closest of friends, the one who is extremely interested in everything about me, in all of my thoughts, in all of my origin, in all of my history, and who loves me unconditionally, without reserve, and without restriction, and who is much more like me than I ever thought, but who is also very much unlike me because I can easily not only embrace him but kneel to him and call him my Lord and my God. And so it's a question. I'm not saying one thing or another. I'm putting this in terms of a dialectic. You know why? I don't want to just teach you and indoctrinate and say you better parrot that. And you better read the manual and believe the manual and parrot the manual. I'm telling you that we should ask a question of reflection. Onset. Is that true? Are the proofs offered for the truth or for the teaching that he came into this world as Adam before the fall... Or did he come into this world with the nature of Adam after the fall? And you say, well, no, that's a sin nature. No, it isn't. It's a nature that's under the corruptive influence of this world. You can't really find in the Bible a word like sin nature. It's not in here. It's not in there like we think it is. So he did not come into this world with a sin nature, but we have to ask the question, did he come into this world like Adam before the fall or after the fall? Did he have all of the disadvantages of being born? Well, let me just put it this, this way to you. Let me put it this way. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The word is not apostello there, sent his son. You know what the word is same word used in Leviticus for the scapegoat sent out and away into the wilderness God sent forth ex apostello he sent out his son the suggestion there is that not only would he be sent into the world but he'd be sent into the wilderness to become sin into nowhere to become sin to become that which is not and to eradicate sin and death he was born of a woman It doesn't say born of a virgin there, although that's emphatically, someone would say, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Of course I do. That's the Christian faith. You cannot have the Christian faith without that faith, without that part of dogma and doctrine and truth and biblical hypertext, hyperlinked text. It's true. He's born of a virgin. But Paul makes it clear that he was born of a woman, and then he said he was born of under the law, but Paul also taught that the law was hijacked by sin, so to be under the law is to be under sin, that is, to be under a corruptive influence, to be in a culture of corruption, he was born of a woman, born under the law, but the law was sin hijacked, so was he born under sin in Romans 3, 9? I say, let's think about it. Think about it. Was he? Quits it. Well, he came into this world as Adam was created, perfect and without, yes, he was perfect, but he wasn't as Adam was created because he was God when he came into this world. He was God. God. But he was very like us. And he had the nature of Adam after the fall. Did he have the nature of Adam after the fall? You say, I, I know how you're thinking. I know what you believe, do you? I'm asking. And therefore, was he temptable? Was he tempted? And did his temptation at Gethsemane get so great as capillaries in his head were exploding and blood was coming forth on his forehead droplets of blood the pressure so great why was the pressure so great if he didn't have two wills in his one person two natures in his one person why was there so much strain if there wasn't some strain against doing Perfect obedience to his father, which would have meant an incomprehensible horror of suffering that we can't even begin to fathom. Why did he die physically? Why did he die? He must have been mortal. He must have had a mortal human nature. You see, already, if you're getting what I'm asking, I'm not, I'm not giving you the doctrine on this. I'm asking. If you're getting what I'm asking, I'll, I'll ask you this. Maybe you're also experiencing Jesus standing over here just got a little closer to you. And relatable to you. And you're relatable to him. What blows me away is that I see him in his divinity to the point where I have to stop and say, my Lord and my God. But at the same time and happening at the same moment, he's drawing near to me like my closest nearest brother and friend. I don't have a physical brother. I have wonderful physical sisters. Now he's drawn near to me in a way that is so close, so near, so unconditionally that it's like the breath I draw, and it's both happening at the same time. The awesome, overwhelming, worshipful reverence of him as God of very God, and then the Strange new familiarity in the good sense, not the kind that causes contempt, the kind that causes wonder. That he's so much like me and yet without sin. In other words, having that same nature, that same proclivity and inclination not to do the will of God, he never acted in that corruptive, mortal inclination of the fallen Adam, never acted, never omitted what he should have done, never committed what he shouldn't have done, never chose to act in sin. In fact, yes, it's true that he also could not have, because he is God of very God, as well as man of very man. And yet, not being able to choose that option, he experienced the pull of that option. Temptation, as it says in Hebrews, and we're going to find answers in Hebrews. Tempted in every point as we are. Tested, and with the testing came temptation from the adversary himself, who was a brilliant tempter. Did he feel the pull of it? Of course he did. Do you feel the pull? Of the only difference between him and you in terms of humanity, we feel the pull... And in order to release the terrible pressure of the pull we give into it, he never did. And the pull at Gethsemane was inconceivable. And he said, if it's at all possible, Father, here's the point here. Here he is. Father, if there's any Other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. We may even look into the history of dogma. There was a people called Monophysites. You know what Monophysites are? One nature. Jesus only had one nature, they say. It's a heresy, of course. He had two natures. He was divine and human. That's what the Chalcedon was all about, the council at Chalcedon. One person, two natures. Then there were the monothelites, from the word thelema, for will, that he only had one will. But then he didn't just have one will. He had two wills, two natures, two wills. Otherwise, he would not say, not my will, but yours be done. He had a human will. He had a divine will. He had a human will as a human man just like us. And so I'm asking the question, did he come into this world as a human being that was like Adam before the fall? Or did he come into this world... With a nature under sin, a nature that was like Adam's after the fall, which is not a sin nature, but a nature that is inclined to choose against God. And therefore, was he very much more like us than we thought? Well, I'm going to tackle this with a hyperlinked text called the Bible. And I'm going to give you some things to think about with that. And so, did Jesus laugh is a question. There's also a study of dogma. There was a man named David Hollas of one of the later Lutherans said, Christ never laughed. I happen to know this. He, he claimed to know that Jesus never laughed. And you ever hear any, I've heard people say that recently. I actually had a pastor tell me this, and I thought about, I've known him for 20 years, and you know what? I've never seen him laugh. ha, ha, ha. Never saw him. I see. I laughed them. No, I never. I actually never saw because he said, "You know, Jesus never laughed." Okay, though. So, so Jesus was not really human because you know what human is? It's called risible. R-I-S-I-B-L-E is a characteristic of humanity, and that means capable of laughing, capable of laughter. Babies are capable of laughter. But fundamentalist Christians are not. Jesus was dour like me. Dull like me. Somber. Oh, so you've made him into your image. I think he'd rather make you into his image. You might even get a laugh out of that. (laughs) Anyways. I've spoken these things, Jesus said, so that my sorrow will be in you. Oh, wait a minute, that's not what he said. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy will be in you. Tell me if you can have exuberant joy like Jesus did in Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. It says he rejoiced in spirit. And he said, Father, I'm, I thank you so much that you've hidden these things from these wise and prudent men. And you've revealed them unto children, unto babies, unto infants. You think he was maybe even laughing when he was rejoicing in the Spirit? I think he was. But he had this mission where he was going to become sin. Yes, he did. He was acquainted with grief. Yes, he was. He took upon himself our infirmities, our weakness. He was crucified in weakness. Now, yet he lives by the power of God. He had to become just like those who he was going to call into glory. He had to become like the children he was going to call into glory. He had to become like his brothers. He called us brothers and sisters. He had to become just like us with blood and flesh. He didn't say he had to become just like Adam before the fall. He said he had to become just like the children that he was about to redeem and call into glory. He had to become, in every respect, katapanta, in every respect, like us. Like us. In every respect, like us. He took upon himself, not the seed of angels, there isn't such thing as a seed of angels, but the seed of Abraham, not The seed, not Adam before, but a seed, a born seed of Abraham. He became people like the people born after Abraham and born through Abraham. They were not people that were people like before the fall. They were people after the fall, born through Abraham. He took upon himself the seed or descendancy from Abraham, descendancy from David who sinned notoriously with adultery, of course, and worse, with murder. With Abraham, who lied to Abimelech and said Sarah was his sister, and she was his half-sister, but he lied to save his own neck. Jesus took on himself the uh, the same nature as men who murdered and committed adultery and lied the same nature that's capable of that but he took on that nature and because he was divine he was not capable of that but he took on that nature and in that nature never sinned never chose to sin we don't even find that out until hebrews 4:15 tested tempted and all points like us yet without sin but he had to be made just Like, how could he reconcile us to God if he didn't become like us? He wasn't a hero. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't Wonder Man. He wasn't Superman. He wasn't all the heroes that people adulate today. He was the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh so much that people said, he's a drunkard. Look at him. He, sit, he goes to basically like he goes to bars and taverns and hangs out with people that are obviously sinners. They blatantly sin, and he's hanging with them. Okay, so that means he's sinning with them? No. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to a change of mind. He's calling them to renounce any human dependencies and to believe in him which is to recognize his all-sufficiency. Repentance is simply the renunciation of all human reliances, all things that we rely upon in our flesh. He's a wine-bibber, say the people in the Elizabethan, Elizabethan English. In our language, it's a drunk. He's a drunk. He's a lazy man. I don't see him. Yeah, he might have been brought up as a carpenter or a stonemason. I don't see him doing any work now. I see him just wandering around preaching. Why doesn't he get a real job? (laughs) He hangs around with prostitutes. I saw him last week. He let a prostitute weep on his feet and wash his feet with her hair. If he knew what kind of woman that was, never let her do that, said the Pharisee, said the fundy. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. His brothers and sisters thought he was loco. He's crazy. His brothers said to him, why don't you go up to the feast? Because they thought if he goes up there, they're going to kill him. Why don't you go up to the feast? He said I'm not going up now I'll go up later his own brothers and sisters and yes he had some Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived and born she did not remain a perpetual virgin I hate to tell you that's Mariology verging on Mariolatry and that takes us away from our total confidence in Jesus Christ so I didn't intend to go this this way today, but I'm just putting forth a question that I think might be something we can think about around Christmas and around 2024. Now, getting back to John, which is how we came through to Hebrews, John doesn't say in the prologue, of the fourth gospel that his own people to whom the Logos came nor the world that he made would be eternally lost because they didn't receive him. No, God sent his son into the world that the world would be saved through him. Not that it might be, but that it would be, and that it was. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It happened. The all things that were made through him, the world, the cosmos, that came to be through him, and that had come to be at enmity to him through the entrance of sin into the world, was to be saved by him through his entrance into the same world. Coming into the same world, he came into the same humanity, And so what I've discovered and what I love about my Lord is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came into this world to take away sin, in whose flesh sin was condemned in Romans 8.3. Let me say it again. The all things that were made through him, the world that came to be through him, in John 1.10. And that came to be at enmity to God through the entrance of sin into the world, through the first man, Adam's fault. In Romans 5.12. That world that came to be at enmity through the entrance of sin and death by sin was to be saved by him. Reconciled to God in Him. Those who did receive Him, that is the minority, were given the right to be the messengers of this good news. Sin had come into the world. Preachers who get on TV and say there's good news but there's bad news, they're not ambassadors, that God has not given them the power to act as the children of God. They're not peacemakers. They're not preachers of the gospel. They're phonies, they're fakers. They don't have the true gospel. I don't care how famous they are, who gave them the keys to the church. I don't care how famous. I don't care how famous their, br- their sons are. Now, sin had come into the world. And he took away sin by his sacrifice. Those who did receive him, the minority, were given the right. Paul knew he was a part of a minority, not a minority of saved or reconciled. He knew the world was reconciled, but he was among a minority of preachers. He said, we are not like the many who soft-pedal the word. We preach in the sight of God, in the presence of God. We speak in fellowship with Christ in 2 Corinthians 2.17. Sin had come into the world and death passed upon all men through that sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sin of the world, not to condemn the world, listen carefully, but to be he in whose flesh sin was condemned. Not to condemn the world, but to be he in whom sin was condemned. That's love. He would take away the sin of the world, which had come into the world by coming into the world through Adam and by being made to be sin. He would come into the world and be made flesh with the intention of being made the sin that had come into the world and with it death. So he became sin by bearing sin and by bearing it away, and by having God condemn sin in his own flesh which he had become by coming into this world. He would take away the sin of the world which had come into the world by coming into the world and by being made to be sin himself. He came into this world for a judgment. I've come into this world for a judgment, John 9, 39, and the judgment. Was to be the judgment that he himself would receive. By becoming sin. And by becoming sin to take away sin from the world. You can't find any bad news in this good news. I get so mad when I see this preacher. I'd I'd like to talk to him someday. (laughs) Gospel is good news. He doesn't even get the next breath out before he says, "Oh, but there's bad news. You just killed it, buddy." All right. Now, I came up with these. I came up with these guys. I came up with some of these guys. I I was in that Jesus revolution thing because some of them came to Vermont of all places, from California, from Chuck Smith's church. They came to Vermont, northern Vermont, a hippie commune. My first service, I came with bare feet and long hair and a Fu Manchu mustache. And Leon Devoid, who had hair about down to here, he looked like one of the Duck Dynasty without the the blowing thing, without the kazoo. And he preached a perfect message on the prodigal son. Perfect. It was perfect. It was good news. But so, I, I, I say to Pam, we watch these things, and I say, Pam, they never, did they ever grow, though? Did they ever take a step beyond that little track they passed out? And many of them didn't. They never went any further than that. And that's sad. And I'm not judging them. I'm just saying, why? Did, <sighs> I'm just kind of glad I studied now. And he said that the, he came into the world to be for a judgment. This judgment that he came into the world to bring. Caused blindness in people. In who does he cause blindness? In the people that think they know the gospel. Believing you have eternal life. Not believing you go to hell. There's this eternal hell. Most people are going to go there. A few of us are not. That's, that's They're blind. And those who think They're blind, he makes awake, he wakes them up, he gives them sight. The judgment resulted then and still does in the blind seeing and the seeing being made blind. In the blinding of those who think they see the meaning of the gospel, but do not. Because they do not see Jesus in his universally saving significance. That's why. They come to see Even though they are blind, they still come to see through the peacemakers, the children of God who are empowered to proclaim the truly good news. The very good news of the all-saving Christ, of the God who is none other than God for us all. So, I'm ready to close, I guess. I don't know. I forgot. I didn't think I was going to preach this way, so the notes will be different from the Spoken, so who cares? When John later writes that anyone who believes in the Son has eternal life, or the life of the age to come, more accurately, and that the wrath of God remains on the one who does not believe. He's not saying that the unbeliever goes to hell in John 3.36. Somebody assumed that. The wrath of God is simply the attitude of the love of God the God of love, the God who is love, against the evil heart of unbelief. That's all. And he's against, and he has wrath against the distortion that causes in the unbeliever. The evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3:12 causes a distortion in the image of God in man. God's, so we're under God's wrath. We are in, all, in one sense, we're all under God's wrath because we're not yet in future world. We're all, we're all still experiencing the, the kind of the downside of his love. And the unbeliever experiences the wrath of God or is under the wrath of God, which is simply the displeasure of the love of, love, of a loving parent of the distortion in its child. Such a person is presently perishing, Paul says, Because, as Paul writes, those who consider the logos of the cross to be foolish and unworthy of their attention are perishing. And that, on the other hand, those who see that word in its true meaning and significance are being saved. They're being saved, 1 Corinthians one eighteen. To anyone who believes, whether Jew or non-Jew, the gospel involves and, in fact, is the power of God for salvation. That's how we see it. To those who don't believe the gospel of God about his son, it's just not worth their time. They remain under the wrath of God inasmuch as they express a human distortion through an evil heart of unbelief. That's all going to change because we're all going to come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. We're all coming there, Ephesians 4.13. So as I close, and I am going to close, only those who do receive him, who do believe in the name of God's only son, receive the authorization to be peacemakers. Like the Logos coming into the world, the peacemakers are not always, in fact, we are not even often received. In fact... They, we, become a persecuted minority. A minority does, that does not receive, and I'll guarantee you this, because the world coddles its own in all its little groups. The world loves its own and protects its own. The cosmos and Satan's system protects its own. The world system will not protect you as a messenger of the gospel, whether from fundamentalist Christians who think that Jesus never smiled, say nothing of laughed. And you know, I'll go so far as to say that I find hilarious our fallen condition. <laughs> and I when I express it myself, which is a daily occurrence. Did you do your daily devotional today? I forgot. I did study for several hours before I even got here. I do that every day without exception, almost seven days a week now for almost 50 years. But did I do my daily devotion? No, but I did discover, much to my own laughter, my my own malodorous human condition in fallen Adam. It's hilarious. I mean, do you ever call yourself an idiot? I call myself an idiot and then add some adjectives. And I do it daily because it's, you know what it is? It's laughing at myself in the fallen condition, which I thank God is only temporary because we are going to be glorified, you know. And so I laugh with Jesus. At my own condition, he actually laughs at our condition too. It's, there is a tragic side to the fall, obviously, but there's also a comic side. I think the Lord gets a kick out of some of the stuff we do. That's so off base, and and we. And even says, he that sits in the heavens will laugh when the calamity comes upon them. Now, that's tragic, and that's a a poetic way of saying it. But I can say that the same one who sits in the heavens and laughs at conspiracies to destroy Christianity can also laugh at the little things we do because we're fallen creatures in a fallen nature, in a fallen world. And so there is a comic side of this. It's like God is more creative than Shakespeare. And Shakespeare didn't only write tragedies. He wrote some comedies too. And there's a comic side to our salvation, a joyous side, a happy side, a humorous side. And a little more serious side, there is a minority that is going to be not receiving the same advantage of other minorities who are prejudiced against or biased against or hated. Those who hate the Jews certainly hate the salvation that has come from the Jews and the bearers of the message that salvation is in Jesus. And even beyond that, there are Jews who remain at enmity with this message, individuals and groups, for they are still unaware of their Messiah being Jesus. So they still have enmity against the messengers of that message. Persecution of the messengers of the gospel comes from many quarters and will probably find a pretty more more and more severity in the times to come. But they will not find the persecuted minority of peacemakers, gospel preachers of the universal saving significance of Christ, will probably not find the sympathy as is given to the world of the trans community minority or the LGBTQ+++. plus plus plus. I don't want to make fun of it, but I, sometimes, I missed it one time, and I said LGBTQ plus barbecue or something. Like, I don't know. But there's more and more initials. But I, the point is there's always an outcry that they're being persecuted. These minorities are being persecuted. Muslims, Asians, blacks, whites, they all will have some sympathy, even have ads on TV, all hate. And they'll say hatred against blacks, hatred against gays, hatred against trans, against trans kids, against LG, all the language, all the, the alphabet, against this, against that, against whites, against this. They don't, I guarantee you're never going to see one unless it's put out by a Christian organization against Christians, against Jesus Christ. The worst thing you can say is to say this name that's a terrible name against this people group it's a terrible name for this people group how about the name of Jesus Christ being dragged through the mud maybe that's even worse what do you think oh no we could say that on TV now but if we say something that in any way impugns a race of people we will go to jail for a hate crime you say In other words, the world coddles its own. Eventually, it will hug its own, protect its own, but the world is not going to protect the ultimate prejudice, which is against the messengers of the true gospel. Jesus said you'll be hated by all nations. All right. That's the good news. So let me just close with this. Where are we in the scripture? How about Hebrews 10.5? This is why coming into the world, what does John 1 say? He comes into the world that he made his world. The world does not receive him. He comes to his own, the covenant people that he called and covenanted with, and they did not receive him. As many as did, though, became peacemakers. They were given the power to be the children of God. Now he comes into that world. He not only comes into that world that was made, but he is made himself, again He is made. The same verb that is used for making the world is used for making him flesh. He's made flesh. And so speaking of this coming into the world, look at Hebrews 10.1. For the law, only a shadow of good things about to come and not the actual essence of those things with the same old sacrifices that they continually offer year after year can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers once for all purified would no longer have a consciousness of sins? But with those sacrifices, there is a... Actually, an annual remembrance of sins, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is why, and we'll close right here, coming into the world, the logos, the word, God made Flesh. This is why coming into the world, that's the creature word side of the integral cosmos, giving a voice to an infant in a manger, giving a voice to an infant in the manger, the first word he says, he says, sacrifice. Coming into the world in the very moment of coming into the world through the miraculous virgin birth, the miracle of Christmas, explainable not by biology, not by medical science, not by chromosomes and meiosis and polar body and all the rest of it, but by a divine miracle, a revelation by which God becomes flesh. He comes into the world, and the first word he says is thusias, a sacrifice. In other words... Here I am. One of my nieces, when she was about three years old, came into the room once, and my sister says, she said, here my are. (laughs) Well, the infant comes into the world and says, here my are, a sacrifice. Here I am, a sacrifice. All the ones that were offered before couldn't take away sin, couldn't take away the memory of sin, couldn't take away guilt. I'm the sacrifice that takes away sin, that bears away sin, that takes away guilt. I'm going to do it. I'm here. A sacrifice. Sacrifice is the first word he says. Stop right there. And the Holy Spirit tells me, stop right there. The first word he says is sacrifice. From the Psalms, Psalm 40, verse 6. The first thing the baby says, entering into this creature word side of the integral cosmos called sacrifice. The world is a sacrifice in the sense he's announcing himself but as it goes on what does it say I've come into this world in the volume of the book it's written of me to do your will O God I came to do your will O God I you've made a body for me not maybe not let's just put it as a question still and leave it in the air A body like Adam's by creation, or a body just like every other human being's that's born into this world? You prepared for me a body, you made one for me, that in it I would do your will. The question hangs in the air Did Jesus laugh? I think you know the answer. The question also hanging in the air is Was Jesus born? like the first Adam was created right from the hand of God? Or was he born in a state just like all the rest of us, even though his birth was a supernatural miracle? That's a dialectic coming up, a dialectic question. But the, the, the question I ask, and I have to say this as a pastor, why do I ask questions like this? For one reason. That Jesus Christ will come closer to you that you will come closer to him that you will see him more clearly and be more like him knowing that he became so much more like you than you think and yet without resorting to sin and he who knew no sin By committing, by omitting, by thinking, by intending, he became sin, that you and I would be made the righteousness of God in him. It's in that that he can embrace us as his righteousness. He embraces us as his righteousness. My Lord and my God, my friend, my brother, My king, my shepherd, the lamb who took away my sin. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son. And I thank you that though through stammering lips and through following a rather winding and crooked path, thus displaying my own fallenness, you have still spoken, and that's the beauty. The beauty that you speak through fallen vessels, through human beings, under the corruption of the fall. You still speak. And I thank you, Father, that your son, by the miracle of Christmas, became like us. He who was with God decided to become with us so that God with us would be with us throughout this age and into the ages to come. Help us to bring this as good news to the world that's already reconciled to you. Rather than condemning a world that's been reconciled, may we go forth from here with a message of reconciliation. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.